I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo. Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is Tuesday, March 27th, 1973 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles. We are watching the 45th Annual Academy Awards. We got a gaggle of hosts this year. Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson. And uh, it's time for the big award of the night, the best picture of 1972, The Envelope, Please. And the winner... Albert S. Ruddy, Godfather. I mean, shocking. I am (laughs) so surprised. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it might have actually been something of a suspenseful moment that night because Godfather did not have the most awards. That is correct. This is actually a fun factoid. Cabaret sets the record for the most wins without winning Best Picture. It wins eight Academy Awards. And doesn't does. win picture. That's crazy. It, yes, um, it is. It is absolutely insane. But I mean, life is a cabaret, old chum. You know. <laughs> um, true that. And I guess they're going like Elsie. I don't know. Um, That's true. Yeah, this was a big ceremony, though. This was huge. I read that this ceremony drew eighty-five million viewers. Isn't that insane by, like, today's standards of who watches the ceremony? 85 million people. You know, there's a lot of great, I know you know this, there's a lot of great Oscar clips on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And um, I watched the the opening of the ceremony for this year. Excuse me. Um, Little little, uh, indigestion there. Um, (laughs) I, um, I watched the opening ceremony for this one. And it wasn't any of the hosts. It was actually this big production number with uh, Angela Lansbury. <laughs> and she, okay. she like, gets up and she's singing and she's dancing. And she's uh, um, the song is called uh, Make a Little Magic. And it's just about how uh, they, they put a movie together and they add the lights and the costumes and the makeup and the... You know, she puts on a, she does a big costume change in the in the course of it, and there are lots of uh, overly dressed, uh, shiny dancers. It's it's very over the top and fun. Make a little magic. That is what it's all about. Um, and uh, that's how they kicked off the show. So if you are curious, you can you can watch how this thing that eighty something million people watched. Um, <laughs> which you gotta wonder, this is nineteen seventy three, right before they're gonna be going into production of what will end up being quite a disaster of a movie called Mame. Maybe this was her her last ditch audition. You know, <laughs> like please be. cast me, <laughs> please right. cast me in the movie I'm, I should be cast in, Lucy. <laughs> please, please, please. Yes, this was Um, one of the more interesting and entertaining ceremonies, it seemed like. Um, I guess it was supposed to have Charlton Heston was supposed to come out and kind of introduce the awards, I guess. He was like the first um, person who had the hosting duties, but he got a flat tire on the way to the ceremony. And that's why they asked 
Clint Eastwood to step in for him to kind of fulfill oh, his hosting duties until he shows which up. Which I was about to say. I it's so funny you mentioned that because I didn't watch that segment of it, but I I after Angela Lansbury got off the stage, I saw that Clint Eastwood was coming on. And then yeah. when I read who the hosts were tonight, I was like, oh, funny. I didn't see any of those people <laughs> in the opening. That would be correct. Yeah, yeah, apparently Clint Eastwood was absolutely terrified. But he did it. And I think he did really well from what I was reading. Um, I guess this it probably fairly just... early in his career. Yeah, very early. But I think it just career, boosted. Yeah, I think it just helped to boost his status in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm pretty sure very he interesting. just... This is right after he has his directorial debut. Because um, his first directing movie is, um, it has Jessica Walter in it. It's called um, Play Misty for Me. Um, and I think that was like 71, 72. So he's, he's, he's a freshly minted director and just now, beca- he's just at this point becoming a box office star after doing TV and, um, and spaghetti westerns in the 60s. So... Um, this is right uh, after Dirty Harry and all that. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, there, there's a lot of interesting things that happen at the ceremony that we'll, I'm sure, talk about. But first off, uh, before we get into that, do you have a do you have a snub this time around? You know, I do. There is one movie that I recently saw for the first time that I saw came out in 1972 that didn't get any love from the Academy this year. I'm talking about the film Jeremiah Johnson, which stars um, Robert Redford and is directed by Sidney Pollack. And when I watched this movie, I was really taken away with it, actually. It's a very early Sidney Pollack production, but this is, you know, already after they shoot horses, don't they? So he's established, and obviously Robert Redford is very established at this point as well. And it's a really brilliant film. And I think this could have popped up in three different categories. Direction for Sidney Pollack, acting for Robert Redford, but definitely cinematography. I think it's really wild that it was passed over. I mean, it's a movie just full of landscapes um, and breathtaking camera work that it seems a little odd that it was passed over. But that's, you know, that's just that's just me. I think it's a great movie, and I would have loved to have seen a bit more... Um, showing for it uh for the 1972 oscars but it didn't but it didn't <laughs> yeah that's uh that's too bad sorry sorry robert you know um <laughs> robert redford uh you know he um we are, we are going to get to talk about him he does end up uh becoming quite the accomplished director although right now he's he's a movie star hasn't gotten into director directing just yet in this point in history um but it's interesting because uh he um did, did he ever get a Best Actor nomination? I can't... It. Yes, he did. He does next year, actually, for The Sting. He's the only... The Sting. The Sting. Yep. Is that his only nomination? That is his only nomination. Isn't so that he's wild? a person who's known as being this ultimate movie star, but he never... But his Oscar is not for being... For acting, and um, he uh, doesn't ever really get recognized for his his work as an actor. And I think he's actually... I think his presence is honestly underrated in in films like All the President's Men. Um, oh, but that's just me. Absolutely, no. He's a very talented actor. Definitely, I agree with you. Um, I also, I too have a snub. Okay. <laughs> um, there is a an absolutely insane, hilarious, 
um, over-the-top comedy that comes out this year called What's Up, Doc? Um, that stars Barbara Streisand um, and Ryan O'Neal and uh, is the film debut of Madeline Kahn. And uh, it's directed by Peter Bogdanovich, um, who's on a hot streak at this point in time. And it is, I think, the funniest comedy I've seen of the 1970s. It just kind of, like, hits the gas and doesn't let up until the movie's over. Barbara Streisand is, like, off the wall, absolutely insane the entire movie. Um, there's a great little moment where where she says, uh, says love means never having to say you're sorry to Ryan O'Neal. And Ryan O'Neal says, like, that's the corniest line I've ever heard in my life or something like that. Um, and uh, then there's all these, there's this chase sequence that happens um, where the two of them are on a bicycle for most of it. And they go all through the streets of San Francisco. And they actually, during the course of the chase sequence, uh, a car went down these uh, steps. Um, I don't know the name of the steps, but there's these these really like iconic, famous steps in, in San Francisco. And they took a car down there and chipped the... Um, and chipped the steps on their way down, and now they don't allow people to film there anymore because What's Up Doc messed it up. Um, That's so funny. <laughs> it's so good. But it's just an absolutely breakneck speed, hilarious comedy. And I, you know, like, I know comedies aren't always honored here, but I do think that this would have been, at the very least, a good screenplay nomination. I think it's one of the better performances I've seen out of um, Barbara Streisand, but most significantly, I think that this is the first of probably many times Madeline Kahn should have been honored for her supporting part because she is, uh, she steals every scene, scene she in, she's in, she plays kind of a, um, um, a, uh, dowdy, um, very particular woman the whole time, and she's just so, she's so, uh, anal retentive and funny the whole movie and it's so different from how she is in blazing saddles or young frankenstein or um or clue you know any of the other great films that she's yet to give us at this point um so i would have honored uh best supporting actress uh nomination at the very least for madeline khan in what's up doc that's amazing all right, I'm going to get into a spotlight of mine now, Ooh. Rance. I want to talk about, okay, I want to talk about the movie Deliverance. This movie oh, is, has yes, my name gonna, in it. Yes, Deliverance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. We're going to get into this because this movie is, is, it's just so peculiar to me how this movie became an Academy Awards nominated film. Um, <laughs> okay. okay, for the pe- for the people out there, Deliverance is about a group of four male friends, all from the city. They're city folk, and they decide to go on a canoe trip uh, in the very remote northern wilderness of Georgia. So it's in this wilderness that's where they stumble upon a couple of locals of this very rural part of Georgia. Right now, when I say locals, what I mean is they're a couple of like backwoods, clearly uneducated folk. And what ends up happening in the movie is these locals rape and humiliate two of the friends in this group, and that's what propels this group of friends to seek revenge. 
and they're just hoping to make it back to their homes alive by the end of the movie. It definitely is one of those films that takes a turn and then it doesn't let up. Um, but this movie is famous for a couple of reasons. The most recognizable is probably the dueling banjos scene, which I think has been you know replicated a billion times at this point. Um, that's the scene where one of the city friends uh, and one of these locals from this rural area, they play the dueling banjo song together back and forth. And it's kind of sweet and cute, but at the same time, it's also a little disturbing and something about it seems very, very off. And you start to realize why it's off later because there's another really famous scene that I talked about. And that's where Ned Beatty gets raped in this movie. And this is a scene that has a very famous line um, where the local tells Ned Beatty to squeal like a pig as he's um, abusing him. Come on, squeal! Squeal! It's very brutal, it's incredibly uncomfortable, um, and my god, did it shock me the first time that I saw this. I had no idea this movie was going to take that turn. But the director of this movie, John um, Borman, he does not shy away from that material, even the slightest. Uh, I do think it's important to note here, though, that another movie came out this same year, 1972, with an equally brutal rape scene. I'm talking about Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. In fact, both of these movies share a very similar structure where the characters eventually try to seek revenge on their rapists, and it becomes this very brutal um, game of cat and mouse type of a deal. So it's interesting to me, then, that Last House on the Left, when it came out, it was almost immediately and unanimously condemned and panned uh, by critics and even audience members because it was so brutal and awful to watch, and they, they called the violence unnecessarily graphic. But then here you have Deliverance, which is just as graphic as Last House on the Left, and they throw three Academy Award nominations for it. Uh, three of the biggest ones, picture, director, and film editing. So I'm just kind of curious, and maybe you have some thoughts on this too, what made Deliverance like an acceptable movie by Academy standards, but Last House on the Left apparently pushed the boundary too far? I'm just not quite sure where that line is to these members. I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, Deliverance uh, is a like a higher budget studio movie, you know. Um, sure. Uh, with some uh, heavier weight people in it, I guess. Um, right. You know, John Borman. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Uh, I think so. Um you know, he had uh, had some success already with, you know, Point Blank, which is so uh, respected and, and whatnot. Um, so I can, I, I think it was probably just looked at as a higher class film. Sure. You know, as opposed to yeah. the more low budget um, situation. Um, and certainly you're not going to honor both movies that are of that theme so right yeah um you choose you choose the one that's uh more respectable and i mean i i think you probably got more um critical uh, acclaim at the time so 
true. It's just that thought. it's that critical acclaim, which is strange to and me because it's you know like they're higher they're grossing. criticizing definitely higher grossing, but it's just like they're yeah. criticizing one film for doing the same thing that they're praising another film for doing, and to me that just seems very weird <laughs> and hypocritical. Well, it's but, hey. <laughs> it's good that you like contradictions because we're full of them here in the seventies. Um, and uh, and the eighties and the there's a it's Oscar there's contradictions abound. Um, that is so, true. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's an interesting true. highlight, Sam. I, I quite enjoyed that. Wonderful. Um, well, how about you? What do you want to highlight and spotlight for this year? Um, I, I would like to talk a little bit about some things that happened during the ceremony. Um, okay. Because uh, one of the most interesting. Uh, moments in Oscar Oscar history happens this time around. Um, so Marlon Brando uh, won Best Actor for um, The Godfather, which in itself is interesting because uh, uh, Al Pacino was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Al Pacino has the largest role in the film and is clearly the lead of the movie. <laughs> yes. Bit of um, category fraud. Uh, yes, and uh, Marlon Brando's the heavier hitter actor, though, so they put him in Best Actor, and then they put three people in Supporting Actor, <laughs> which I think just completely took away any chance that uh, Al Pacino had of winning um, this time around. Don't worry, Al Pacino, you'll be back. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, I, I do think it's interesting, because really, I think they just probably both should have been nominated in lead. But that would have canceled any chance of either one of them getting the Oscar. And we already had a twofer in here. We had Michael Caine and Lawrence Olivier nominated for uh, Sleuth. So, you know. Right. Anyway, it's just interesting. Interesting. Um, Very. But uh, this year, Marlon Brando uh, refused his Oscar. He um, sent, um, instead of him coming to the ceremony he sent uh sakin little feather little feather um uh who was a native american woman uh to come and read a speech um which she only read part of at the podium she read the rest of the press backstage um where she uh basically was protesting the awards because of the treatment of indigenous people or he was protesting his honor as uh, to highlight the treatment of indigenous people here in the United States. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. So it's a very... Uh, famous moment um of her going and doing that um the thing that i think is interesting beyond the moment itself um and i think the you know maybe um maybe misguided in the way that he went about uh highlighting it but i do think he was very much had his heart in the right place and was trying to highlight a very um an issue that uh, marred so many movies made at that time and earlier with westerns that were you know pretty blatantly racist and uh, white supremacist in their view of the old west among other issues um, what's 
really fascinating to me. I had the question, like, what happened to Marlon Brando's Oscar? Um, Because Sakeem Littlefeather does not walk away with that Oscar. Um, True. Nobody does. Uh, Mm -hmm. Instead, Roger Moore, who's presenting it, walks off the stage with that Oscar. Now, Roger Moore says he took that Oscar on a little tour. And he kept it for a few years, and then eventually someone came and claimed it. Okay. <laughs> um, which, that's a fun story. You know, James Bond steals an Oscar. You know. Hilarious. Um, uh, but uh, what's really, really interesting is every single Oscar has a serial number. Okay. Um, and there was an Oscar that was on display that had in a museum that was being displayed as Marlon Brando's Oscar um, that didn't have any printing on it because it was never taken to the engraver, obviously. Um, And it had a serial number. And um, it turned out that that Oscar was not indeed Marlon Brando's Oscar, but it interestingly had the exact same serial number as Marlon Brando's Oscar because after it wasn't given away somebody scratched out in these books his serial number and they reprinted another one with the same serial number okay okay so there ended up oh being God. there ended up being this display Oscar that was put on loan um, and then somehow ended up at this museum and then there ended up being this other Oscar that Roger Moore stole and then eventually was repossessed Oh my. And it's a little confusing as to what actually happened to the Oscar. Um, but basically, what is assumed is that it just eventually went back and was reprinted with somebody else's name on it. But um, okay. I probably messed up parts of that story because I just read an article <laughs> and I'm regurgitating it. So I, I encourage everyone to go fact check everything I just said. The point of the story is. As far as I can tell, Robert Moore, Roger Moore walked off of that Oscar and had it for at least a few days, if not for a few years, as he claimed. So, um, you know, I guess I guess he, like, looked around backstage and everyone was so confused about what had just happened. Nobody thought, like, what do we do with the <laughs> what do we do with this other award? Um, and he didn't put it back. Crime. He didn't put it back in the pile, you know, to be right. redistributed as something else. So. He took it. Hilarious. <laughs> Roger Moore. Wow. Roger Moore took the Oscar. And this is also a couple of other interesting notes here. Um, Charlie Chaplin won a competitive Oscar this year after getting his honorary Oscar last year. He did not come back for the ceremony, but the competitive Oscar is interesting. It's because it's for a movie called Limelight. Limelight was released 20 years prior to the ceremony. Um, but it had never screened in Los Angeles, so it wasn't eligible for Oscars until it was screened in 1972. Um, <laughs> Wild. And then, I know. And then Chaplin won a competitive, his only competitive Oscar, uh, for Best Original Dramatic store, Score for Limelight, a movie he had made 20 years prior. Um, right. <laughs> uh, it also marked the... Um, first time that uh, two black women were nominated for Best Actress. Cicely Tyson and Sounder and Diana Ross and Lady Sings the Blues. The interesting Mm -hmm. part of that is this ceremony 
um, this year, 2021, uh, will be the second time two black women were not are nominated in the same category for Best Actress. And even more interesting, one of those people is playing Billie Holiday, just wow. like Diana Ross did in wow, Lady wow, Sings wow, the wow, Blue. Wow, wow, wow. So both wow, times wow, wow. that black My I know blown. I know both times that black women have played um, have been both times that two black women have been nominated for Best Actress. Both on both occasions, someone was playing Billie Holiday. <laughs> wow, Andrew Day in this case uh, for oh, um, the U. What is it? It's the United States versus Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday, yep. and then Diana Ross and Lady Sings the Blues. So, so what you're saying is, it took 51 years for us to nominate two black actresses in the leading category again, <laughs> again, again. <laughs> That's what you're saying. It took it took forty five years, and then it took fifty one more years. And I hope that um, we can we can have another we can talk about maybe a special episode where we can talk about the Oscars this year. But I, um, uh, I, I certainly hope that we are more diverse in the future. Um, and that thing, boy, and that, do that, I agree with that. And I hope that this year's the look of this year's nominees i hope becomes the standard and not the exception yes Um, and not only the look of the nominees but let's hope they actually award the right people you know what i mean it's one thing to nominate a slew of diverse performers but unless you're actually going to give them the award then it's kind of just like oh look at us pat pat ourselves in the back we nominated them so it's okay we're doing our job like bullshit and it's also it's also about giving those opportunities i think there's a lot of years where the nominees haven't been diverse because we haven't been giving um we haven't been giving people of color opportunities that yes. we are giving the white actors you know it's just about making it um it's just about a level playing field you know you're right like you're right let's 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 give equal opportunity in all all races for all roles for all stories being told like let's get the true eclectic perspective out there interestingly this year also has um a gay man winning best supporting actor although he was not out at the time Mm-hmm. Joel Gray is gay. Um, I believe he was living as a straight man at this point. He does have a very famous daughter named Jennifer Gray as well. Um, but uh uh, in addition to having those two in addition to having a best actor winner who is speaking out about uh, the mistreatment of uh, Native Americans, in addition to having two black women nominated for Best Actress. Hollywood doesn't know it, but they're making a, they're breaking a little ground with uh, honoring a gay man as Best Supporting Actor. Um, That's true. So there's, there's a lot going on this year, if you look at it that way. Um, Absolutely. And you know what? I think you've just kind of helped us transition into our main topic event. of the godfather by highlighting our supporting actor race this is a really interesting race i actually love this slew of supporting actor performances mm-hmm. joel gray beating out three performers from the godfather part one now two of those performers i think definitely deserve to be there i would say james can can james con con james yeah, con con and he's conning and al pacino 
give Oscar-worthy performances, category fraud aside for Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. To me, Robert Duvall doesn't necessarily do quite as much to do, to warrant a nomination. I actually think he does more and has heavier scenes in part two of The Godfather, which he was not nominated for. Uh -huh. But it doesn't matter. None of it matters because Jules Grey wins, and I love this win so much. I think it is one of the truly oh, greatest he's... supporting actor performances ever captured on film. You know, and it's he's like I I, I, I was going to say he's the heart of the movie, but I don't know if heart's exactly the right word. Mm, um, I know he's but... like the well, he's the master of ceremonies, is what he is. Well, literally, yeah, he you know, he, and like, like literally credited as the MC. I am your and he he's yeah um he um he he's like the 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 beat the the base of the film mm -hmm. if that makes sense and he um the, the little heartbeat that's happening underneath well, everything. My favorite it's like the bridge. Moment, yeah. Yes. My favorite moment in the entire movie um, is whenever they sing uh, Tomorrow Belongs to Me, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, it's just a geniusly staged scene to begin with because it starts out as just like, oh, look at this kid singing this sweet song. And then you pan down, you see the swastika on his, uh, the swastika patch on his arm, uh, then you see the very divided reactions of some of the crowd, like, you know, the old man that if refuses to stand up and and sing and, uh, you know, the people who are clearly like enraptured with this. And then we have our three main we have our three um, uh, the, the our two main characters and the supporting character who is with them um, take off because they're like, eh, this is kind of weird, whatever. And then, you know, they're because they're not paying attention to anything. And then uh, we pant it just zoom out of this of this incident. And there's this quick cut to Joel Gray's face looking dead on in the camera. And it's kind of like it's for me, the movie really crystallizes, if you if that makes sense. It's at yep. like that moment where you go, oh, this is what this is about. Yep. And you realize that you're watching, yeah, you're watching Sally Bowles, you know, deal with the men in her life and whether or not she's going to keep a baby and, you know, um, all the other uh, elements here. But all of that is just, um, is is really the background to a story that's about the Nazis taking over Berlin. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I, th yes. And I think too, like in terms of our ceremony here and Joel Grey picking up the statue for supporting actor over three of the Godfather performers, I think that was a pretty early um, warning, like red flag for the, the Godfather team that they might not win as many awards as people were probably thinking they were going to. You know, this is uh, this year really does come down to a two-way race between Cabaret and The Godfather. You know, two movies that have stood the test of time are 
perfect from top to bottom, but also like very different, different movies, one being a musical and one just being a hardcore family drama. Um, I mean, what's to be said about The Godfather that hasn't already been said? It really is one of the greatest movies of all time. It's it's excellent. It really is. This movie is written and like presented like an opera. It just builds and it swells so effortlessly um, that you don't really realize you're watching for three hours. It moves so quickly because every scene um, gracefully falls into the next. Like there's really nothing to be cut out of this film. You need every scene for the whole thing to make sense. You know what I mean? Like one scene sets up the other, which sets up the other, which rolls this into motion, which keeps going. It's just like a, a train that just keeps chugging along. Um, I, yeah, I just think it's brilliantly laid out. Um, but so is Cabaret. And then Cabaret, you have that extra element of it being sort of absurdist versus reality. You know, that's what I was saying about Joel Grey. He really is that bridge between the absurdist Cabaret life and what's really going on in Nazi-occupied Germany. You know, he's really that character that can bleed into both worlds, but doesn't really belong to either world. It's so interesting. Um, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Um, but okay, I'm curious though, yeah. Rance. Um, yeah. let's, just, let's just get this question out of the way right now. Would you pick Godfather or would you pick Cabaret? I would I would pick the Godfather. Um, okay, tell me why. Um, I, I mean I think I think they're both perfect films. I completely agree with you. Um, I think uh, I think they both also say something about filmmaking at the time. But the Godfather, the Godfather has such a life beyond anything else in, in cinema, you know what I'm saying? Um, yes. It is, it is in that rarefied uh, place where Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and, um, you Citizen know, Kane. Uh, Citizen Kane, it's in that rarefied place where you can't really, it's hard to argue with it winning just because it is, it is a great film, but it's also so culturally impactful. Mm. Um, and True. we um, we reference this movie daily, often without realizing we're referencing the movie. It's just so embedded in our culture. It is... Uh, and taking it beyond that, I mean, uh, you know... Uh, there are a lot of films that are embedded in our culture, which, you know, not, aren't necessarily best picture winners, but this one has such a twisty, turny story with such a great character arc um, mm -hmm. that, and it ends so perfectly. Like, I, yes. I, this is one of my, my favorite endings of all time because I like that in this super macho story... Coppola does not forget about the women in the story because, you know, while it's just, it's really just Diane Keaton and Talia Shire who have really developed female parts. Um, 
I viewed Diane Keaton as the heart of the story. Um, I, she's like, like she's, the audience, right? She's the outside looking in. She's the outside looking in. She's the one who has hope and believes in Michael and loves Michael. And, and we are right there with her the whole time, believing in him that he can rise above what his beginnings were, um, what his family is. And yeah. um, we can get we can get more into when we get to 1974. I'll have more to say about that too, um, mm-hmm. because of where her character goes. But um, I love the fact that the movie ends on her. I love mm-hmm. that it's her looking into this room, and you know, honestly, like if we hadn't, part two is also a perfect movie, and we'll get to that. But if, like, the whole franchise had just ended with her looking through that door and the door closing on her, um, and that's the end, like, that would have been that would have been a perfect ending in and of itself, you know? <laughs> that would have been um, enough, right? <laughs> yeah, that would have been enough. I'm really glad we have part two because I think part two is uh, also a great film, and we can talk about that later, obviously. But um, I... Um, it's just such a complete experience and so well written and the acting is so so good uniformly um um yeah i just i i really really love it but i i also love cabaret it's just that there's something that there's something about godfather that feels just slightly more timeless you know what? I was going to kind of say this, too. Uh, a couple of things I want to ask you. So the first, my first thought to kind of uh, put a pin in what you were just talking about, if we think of in terms of, like, which movie's better, right? Sometimes I kind of go into the thought process of, well, I could, I could see Hollywood remaking Cabaret someday, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's an entity and a property that's been redone on the stage a billion times, so I can see. And the I stage show is very different from the movie, too. Very different. And um, honestly, I actually prefer the stage show. But the movie's brilliant. But I also I can see them eventually remaking it. The Godfather, mm-hmm. I think, is untouchable. I don't think they would ever have the balls to recast any of those people and like try to put up something better the than what one is already thing- there. The one thing I will say, piggybacking off of what you just said, um, is that one of my, like, do I say that all the time? I think that's my slogan. I piggyback off of... um, uh, (laughs) In terms of iconic performances, nobody... I have a tough time believing that anyone else could play Sally Bowles as well as Liza Minnelli. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the Eliza Minnelli is such perfect casting, and while I I think that I could imagine lots of other people doing the other parts in that, nah, I mean Joel Gray is also pretty perfect too. There are other oh, ways yeah. you could interpret that character. That's the thing. Yes. No one could do that character better than Joel Gray does it in the way they do it. But I know that there are uh, other people in the stage show have taken the Master of Ceremonies and just played them completely different from the way that Joel Gray played him. And you could do that. But Sally Bowles as a fully re- realized character in person, I don't think there's any other way to do it once you see the way Liza Minnelli does it. And I don't think anyone else could do it or sing it 
um, the way that she does. Yeah. You know? No, you're it's, absolutely um, right. It is a perfect performance. It is a, it's a slam dunk, you know? Um, yes. And, uh, and anybody who was thinking like, oh, this girl's just famous because of her parents or whatever, like you watch this movie, <laughs> yes. you know, like she's, yep. she, she gave the scene where she explains that she had an abortion is like uh, an acting clinic, you know? Yeah. Um, it's devastating. Uh, and when she sings, maybe this time her performance of cabaret at the end, it's like, uh, So, so, so good. Um, I am also, just because this is like the only time I get to talk about her, um, I am pretty obsessed with Liza Minnelli. Um, I, know it's a stereo- <laughs> I know it's a stereotype, um, but I, um, I have a wonderful live album, Liza Minnelli at, at Carnegie Hall. Um, that is fantastic. Uh, that my cat Charlotte also apparently thought was fantastic because she scratched one side of the record, and now I can't listen to that <laughs> side anymore. But um, uh, but she um, if no if I don't recommend anything else for anyone to do ever in my life, I would want to recommend that if you ever have the chance, go to YouTube, type in Liza Minnelli, New York, New York. Liberty Weekend. It is a performance. There's several videos of it on YouTube that she gives of New York, New York, that is in a football stadium at this big uh, rededication of the Statue of Liberty ceremony. Uh, and the event took place in this big football stadium. And so there are like 50,000 people at night, lights. Uh, everybody has like the little, like, um, the little lightsaber things, you know, uh, so you see the the audience lighting up and the old video quality that it is, and she gives the most insane live performance of a song I've ever seen. Anybody who thinks that Frank Sinatra owns New York, New York, you're incorrect. You need to go watch. <laughs> Yes, uh, she sings it in the movie New York, New York and introduces it, but this performance of that song is my favorite live performance of anything ever that I have seen. And if I'm ever in a bad mood, I just watch this. She adds this whole section where she adds an extra key change to the song and she go and she goes way up into the stratosphere of her well, I mean I mean she's an alto, but you know. She goes yeah. pretty way up there uh, for her. And uh, uh, it's just like one extra, if anyone knows the song, it's one extra My Little Town Blues. Um, and then she like growls out the last New York. It's like literally the best thing you will ever see. I'm not <laughs> kidding. It is a master class. I've watched it a million times. I could do it beat for beat. Maybe I have. Um, <laughs> Probably you have. So that is likely, of course I have. Um, anyway, so I love <laughs> Liza Minnelli. This is, Cabaret is her greatest film performance, but she is also legendary because she's such a great live entertainer. And that is a performance I, I request everyone go watch. Thank you. That has been done. my TED Talk. <laughs> I love that. Done and done. Done and done. Um, um, 
Okay, so anyway. I'm curious. Just want to ask you. Is that final scene of The Godfather, then, where the door closes um, on uh, Kate, right? That's her name? That's her character's name? Uh, Kay. Kay, Kay? just Kay. Yep. Kay, yes, you're Kay. right. It is yes. Kay. Yes. Yeah. Diane Keaton. Is that, yes. for you, like, your your favorite also, scene in The Godfather? Also, best supporting so many act- good scenes. Oh, oh, my God. Sorry. I just really quickly snub. Where is Diane Keaton's... Best Supporting Actress nomination. I'm so Well, you see, I don't think she deserves one for the first movie. The second, Godfather, 100% yes, definitely. She should have been nominated over Talia Shire. But I don't think she does quite enough to warrant a nomination for part one. See, I think Talia Shire makes more sense in the first movie being nominated, if we're going to go that route. Because she has the big... Because she has the scene where she throws all the plates in the first movie. You know, like... I, I mean, I mean, she's she's very good at what she does, but her part is a lot smaller in the second one. It feels than the first one. That's so, what I'm saying. That's where I'm like, Diane Keaton definitely should have gotten a nomination in part two. Okay. Um. um yes. Anyway, sorry. It's just that we have all these guys nominated. You know, there's only know, two right? women who are going to even qualify for this. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, no, I just wanted the to ask scene, you what best scene. Yeah, in the what movie. scene is it that clinches the best picture Oscar for you in the Godfather? Oh, which which scene? Without question, um, the the christening. Um, mm, where he kills the the bosses of the five families. Yes, where there's yes. Um, where you're where you're cutting between all the kills mm. and the christening at the same time. The use of sound. The use of. Um, of editing in that, you know, mm-hmm. the performance from uh, from Robert De Niro. I mean, like, that is, um, that is a genius moment it's genius. of cinema. And what I love about that, too, is the symbolism you have in that where, in the beginning of the film, right, it's Brando dealing with the family business troubles um, over his daughter's wedding. And now here you have Michael dealing with the family business troubles over that same daughter's newborn son's, um, uh, what is it called? Baptism, right? So you kind of have these two bookends the of the movie. The yeah, yeah, right? You have these two bookends. And but how, how much more violent each other. is Michael? I love that. It's something oh, that I yes, love is right. that Michael becomes a much more, like, with, um, with Vito, you have somebody and... It feels like it's somebody who's really trying to protect his family. Like, for him, it is about the family. With Mm -hmm. Michael, it becomes like a bloodlust for power, you know? Oh, it's about proving himself, right? Because nobody takes him seriously at first. So he's like, okay, fuck y'all. I'm going to kill all these people, and now you'll finally respect me. And and how little it is about family for him, it obviously becomes much more clear See, we can't... It's so interesting, because talking about The Godfather, it's so hard not to talk about what happens in The Godfather Part 2, because yeah, because um, so much of that comes into play. Um, did I say Robert De Niro a second ago? I meant Al Pacino. Um, <laughs> I didn't even again, catch you if you did. I'm already on Part 2, just wa- ready, ready for De Niro to get in there, you know? Um, yeah. But uh, I think that that... There's a lot of great scenes. I think, uh, you know, the scene that defines Michael where um, his first wife dies is... Yes. ...wonderfully staged. Um, 
the whole opening scene with the wedding and and all the cutting mm-hmm. between everything happening there uh the opening monologue by the guy asking a favor of marlon brando and brando yes. having that cat and um, <laughs> you know uh yeah the scene no, where marlon it. brando gets shot you know and the oranges see, that are me, in the scene ah oh, there's oranges in the scene where he gets shot it's mm-hmm. so genius because oranges symbolize death in the movie <laughs> yes well okay oh. that's great i'm actually glad you brought that up because i want to talk to you about the scene that clinches it for me okay which is brando's death where he uh, has his heart attack and dies there is mm-hmm. something about that scene that is just so beautiful uh-huh. um and so effortless and perfect um there's you know he, it's the scene where he's chasing his grandson right through the garden outside and everyone is just so naturalistic and it, it feels so intimate what we're watching a grandfather playing with his grandson even though we know that this is like the head of a mafia family like, you know like he has so much baggage and he's done mm-hmm. all these terrible awful things but at its core he is a grandfather, you know? Mm-hmm. And the only thing that matters in this scene is that he plays with his grandson and they're running through the garden and it's heartbreaking when he finally has a heart attack and falls down. And what I love about it is that, like, Coppola, I feel like he could have cut right there, but I feel like he was like, let's just let's keep the camera running and see what happens because the little boy actor who's playing the grandson oh so you can see him you see him like after brando falls he like looks off into the distance almost like he's looking at maybe crew members or something kind of being like was that supposed to happen like clearly like you know being a child and it's terrified that this man just fell over and then it kind of dawns on this child's face that oh something bad has happened and then coppola cuts i just think it's so genius that we see the aftermath of Vito's death through the eyes of a child and I just think it's brilliant I think that scene plays perfectly I love it so much that for me is is the the crowning achievement in this film it's just so humane and real it yeah it feels like you're watching a home video I love it yeah it never loses sight of the humanity it's a very um I mean, it's a it's a perfect it's a perfect movie it really is just a, mm-hmm. a miracle of cinema you know. And I think, too, like, had <laughs> poor Cabaret. Had Cabaret come out maybe next year in 73, it would have beaten the Best Picture winner, The Sting. It's just, you know, we yeah. had these years, Rands. We had these years where you there are... one uh, big movie. Yeah, you know what I mean? And this is one of those years where And then you have those years, like... Up. Yeah, then you have those years, like, where Oliver wins, and you're like, eh. <laughs> you know, like, know. it's just so funny. You have these stacked years, and then you have other years yeah. where you're like, I mean, I guess this is the winner. <laughs> but yeah. this and is I a can year also see... that's... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I can also see why. It also kind of makes sense to me that The Godfather wins picture, you know, actor, writing... Those are the only three that it wins, and then Cabaret wins all the rest. Because if you look at the technical production side of Cabaret, you know, yeah. all the music, all the costumes, all the camera work, like, there is so much going on that was so oh, it's, new it's and fresh. That I yeah. love, yes, I love that it wins all of those Oscars. But, you know, as a whole, Although The Godfather it's... feels right. 
what's wrong is that you know godfather wasn't even nominated for best cinematography and that's incorrect that is incorrect. You're right. That is 100% um, especially wrong. looking at the nominees and seeing that 1776 and the Poseidon Adventure are on here. I'm here to tell you, <laughs> Godfather has innovative, amazing camera work and lighting in particular. Um, and the fact that it doesn't yes. have art direction or cinematography when its entire look is just so that's like ugh, the look is what it's all about, you know. Um, it's like um, in 2003 when Lord of the Rings Return of the King wins 11 Oscars for 11 nominations but was not nominated in cinematography. I still don't get that, but similar instance here. Yeah, it's just um, I don't know what the people in those branches were thinking, but there you go. Um, there you have it. <laughs> well, if you guys can't tell, we're not super upset about this year. Um no, so, I love I love the winners. Yeah, I love what happened here. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, next year. Um, next year. Um, oh, uh, sorry. I just saw Edward G. Robinson got an got an honorary Oscar this year. That's that's cute. Yeah, good um, for him. I know. Um, oh, but he didn't make it. Oh no, he died two months before the ceremony. Oh, oh you're right. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, that's so sad. I bet you they, because they probably decided before that yeah. happened to give him the award. That's sad. Okay. Um, I'm glad he has one. He's a, he's a great actor. Um, uh, yes. Uh, next year. Next, uh, next year. 1973. At, um, yeah. Uh, great. Uh, uh, interesting year. There's a, there's a couple of more all time iconic films nominated for best picture and one that wins best picture um i i think that um i think we'll have a lot to talk about between um what coppola produces this year um Mm -hmm. what george roy hill directs and what william free and what william peter blatty wrote Yes, this is going to be a very interesting year. We're going to discuss the best picture winner is The Sting, but this is also the year of The Exorcist. This is the year of American Graffiti. Uh Um, This is a huge, huge year. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this one and break it down. Okay, we'll talk about it next time around. We'll be with you then. Mm